So, here we are. We've been sitting, walking, standing, practicing together for just about a day, really. Not so long in some ways, and what may, of course, have felt like quite a considerable length of time. When we are turning our attention to our experience, that can be that there's rather a lot we discover, we encounter. And I'd like to just offer some reflections on this process and what we might be seeing or understanding in regard to it. There was an experiment done not so long ago in America rather interesting outcome where a group of people were invited to, or sort of as a subject of the study was suggested to just spend half an hour sitting doing nothing by themselves and most of them didn't think this would be too difficult but uh, they were they were given in this experiment the opportunity if they wished they 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 were um they were allowed to experience what it was like to receive an electric shock before they did this. And all of them thought this would be something really unpleasant. They wouldn't really want to have these electric shocks. They thought, no, thank you. Um, but they were left in a, in a room by themselves where they had the opportunity, if they wished, they could give themselves one. And uh, the remarkable thing that came out of this experiment when these people were simply told to sit in a chair, do nothing, think about whatever, an incredibly high proportion of them chose to give themselves electric shocks. In the course of this 15 minutes or 30 minutes, they were left there. It was like to inflict upon themselves something that they had previously checked out to know they did not like this. In fact, they even some of them were sort of invited, would you pay to avoid having this done to you? And they said, yes. And yet something about being left by themselves, just with their mind and their body, led them to the, with a conclusion, but certainly the outcome that actually would be preferable to inflict themselves with something unpleasant than just be there with nothing to do. And I find that fascinating and remarkable as a statement of our human condition. I mean, what is it about our experience that is so difficult for us? Of course, in another way, I'm not so so surprised, having spent a lot of time in a situation which mostly involves sitting around doing nothing. As we are or standing around or walking around doing nothing. And if we were to describe to our friends at home what we'd been doing for the last 24 hours, you know, well, they, you know, asked us to be quiet and said, you know, you can sit on those cushions or those chairs and just stay there, don't do anything for a while and then get up and could you, you can walk around but don't go anywhere, don't, don't, don't you know, don't rush. And then we can stand around doing nothing for a little bit as well. You have that as an option. And you know, at the end of the day, we might say to our friend, wow, I felt really tired. It was really hard. And they'd go, yeah, that was hard? 
You feel tired? That sounds like a holiday. And yet, of course, having done it, we know that that's not the case. So what is it that goes on here for us in this process? Where we're invited, in a hopefully friendly way, to come close to our experience, to come close to what's actually happening for us in our mind, our heart, our body. It's so different from how we ordinarily live, it seems, which much of the time we're kind of lost in our minds and the worlds of thinking. As the uh, much-loved teacher in Thailand in the 20th century, Ajahn, which means teacher, Buddha Dasa, he was once asked, how would you describe the world? And he responded, he said, in three words, he said, lost in thought. In so much of our lives, perhaps we can recognize this, we're lost in the, the churning, in the, in the ranting, in the negotiating, in the desperately begging for, or hoping for, or whatever it is we find our minds engaged in. It's so easy to be living in these worlds of past and future. To not quite know where we are. To not quite know what it is to be here. To be. And there's something kind of tragic about it, actually. If we stop and reflect. It's uncomfortable, it's squirmy, it's frustrating, it's annoying. In so many ways, to just have to sit with our own experience. And yet, if we look at what goes on when we don't do that, there's something kind of tragic about being driven through our life. And what drives us so much of the time is the power of fear and the power of craving. These forces that arise within us telling us we must have this or we must not encounter that. I cannot get by without. I cannot cope if. And whatever we might add into that has this effect of really constraining, constricting, restricting and tightening the experience of our life. And we we find ourselves in the condition that we're in. It's not an easy place to be. Sometimes, of course, it's delightful. But often, it's not at all easy to turn towards our experience and our life directly. And this process of wanting certain kinds of experience feeling that somehow our fulfilment will depend upon or does depend upon getting 
or sustaining certain kinds of experience and avoiding or bringing to an end other kinds of experience. This is a a profoundly compelling narrative, story or way of relating to life in our world, in our culture, in ourselves. And sometimes it's it's kind of useful just to reflect on it. There's a a lovely story that uh, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama tells about a visit he made to a to a monastery in in America. And in this monastery, they are uh, the the people who live there were quite self sufficient, and they they made these cheeses that were renowned throughout. The, the region, these exquisite and beautiful cheeses that sold for great prices. And they also made these simple fruitcakes that they sold in the local market. And His Holiness was being shown around the monastery and he said again and again, I, I wasn't there when he told the story, I, I, but I heard it from someone who was, he said again and again, they would bring me these pieces of their, their famous and fabulous cheeses and invite me to eat them. And he said, and through this whole day, they kept giving me pieces of cheeses and he said, all I wanted was a piece of that fruitcake. <laughs> and in a certain way, it just sums something up about how our life can be at times for us. And we don't get to choose how we feel about the experience. It's like, here they are giving me this wonderful cheese and... I want fruitcake. It's not what's on offer. Or we might sometimes find we actually get given exactly what we want. You know, whatever we've dreamed of, fantasised about. It happened for me once on a retreat. And um, I'm always hesitant sometimes to mention the things I really like in case people feel responsible for providing them for me. But I really like lasagna, so I'm not trying to give a message to the cooks. It's okay. (laughs) Um, I really like lasagna. It's just one of those things. Um, and one day when I was on retreat practicing as you've been practicing today and as I had been for some days at that point they served lasagna and I was like oh yeah I was so happy I was so excited and yet I noticed as I was walking in the queue and and, and getting closer to it it was like how much can I take how much can I take (laughs) you know I really want a lot of this And, and there's a sign that says moderation please and so it's like how big is the biggest moderate piece you could possibly imagine and I I took that piece and then I went and sat down and started eating it and and all the time I was eating I was thinking will there be enough for a second helping will there be enough for a second helping and I was shoveling this lasagna in at quite some speed and the anxiety about whether I'd be able to get some more was just getting stronger and stronger And you know, I love lasagna, but in the whole time I was eating this, I didn't enjoy it. I was so worried about whether I'd get more, whether there'd be enough for a second helping. And when I came to the end of it, I'd actually already eaten too much. I was uncomfortably full. It was probably not a moderate portion I'd taken, but it's sometimes hard to tell when you're in the grip of that kind of craving. And that hope and fantasy that this is going to do it for you. This is, I'm just going to be so happy. It's the story that runs with it. And the tragedy was I didn't even enjoy 
the lasagna I had and I didn't want any more. There was plenty. It's so hard for us even to enjoy what we receive, what is beautiful, what is lovely, because so quickly we start wishing and thinking for how do I continue, how do I sustain the experience. It's so hard, it seems, just to enjoy that which is sweet or lovely, just for itself, just for now, with no guarantee it'll ever be quite this good again. And it, it's something we can encounter when we come on the retreat. It has this sense of a forward-leaning momentum that some of you spoke about in the groups today, this afternoon. That, that sense of feeling like we're sort of, we can't quite stop. We're sort of busy and we're going and we've got all these things to do. And even when we get to somewhere where there's nothing to do, our system can't quite stop. It's just got to keep going at it at the same speed. And it's, it's almost painful the friction or the, the resistance to slowing down or just doing a bit less. And that is tied often with a very deep sense that we carry that we maybe haven't seen or questioned or reflected on that we somehow have to get somewhere else. We have to produce something else. We have to become someone else that where I am or what is here or in fact who it is that is here has to somehow be different than what's here than where I am than what's happening because there's the idea that at the end of that process then I'll be able to stop then things will be good then it will be like ah but here, it's not possible, it seems, from that place. It's like there's this unconscious sense or assumption that somehow something is missing, something is wrong, something is lost. And our effort and our focus and our engagement is so much concerned with looking at where we are, trying to understand, trying to evaluate, how can I get from this place to where I need to be? It's exhausting. It's so hard to do that. To be caught in that momentum, to be driven relentlessly towards some place where we, or some condition, or some state of being that we imagine when I get there, then I can stop. But until I get there, I'm not allowed to stop. I've got to keep going. And we can see how our world is accelerating. Perhaps you've noticed or have a sense of it. Things somehow seeming to need to move faster. How, you know, we can't actually sustain attention on many experiences. The length of the average piece of news is getting shorter and shorter and shorter because it's just really hard for people to stay with something as long as they might have once been able to do. Because there's that constant sense, well, yeah, I've heard that, but what about the next bit? Again, that sense of momentum. That sense of momentum. And we might notice it here on the retreat. It's like we're, we're here, we want to practice, we're interested in meditation. And yet, sometimes the sense arises when we're sitting. And it's like, I can't wait till the end. 
You know, when when's it going to get to the when's the bell going to ring? Sometimes it's like, you know, whoever's at the front, they've forgotten, they've fallen asleep. We've been here for hours. You know, we can't still be here, but we are. And that sense of oh, oh, when the bell rings, then it's going to be ah, oh, you know, so looking forward to the next thing. Of course, the bell rings, and sometimes there's a sense of oh, relief. But you know, the moment after the bell rings. It's not really any different than the moment. <coughs> same body, same mind, same place. And yet, for a brief moment, there's a sense of, oh, we've come to an end of this. And then I can go walking. Oh, great. Oh, walking. Oh, we're walking. We're walking and we're walking. And we've been walking back and forth for hours, but it's only been 10 minutes and we've got another 20 minutes to go. And it's like, I can't wait to get to the next sitting even though I couldn't wait to get to the end of the last one, but I've forgotten already. It's like we forget what's happening unless we pay attention. And then, of course, you know, we start thinking about lunch. That'll be good. That'll be good. And it is good. And yet when we're eating it, we might be thinking about the cup of tea or the rest or the walk that's happening after. And we come into contact with this momentum, this movement, this often drivenness that is uncomfortable to experience. And so we're asked to to kind of acknowledge that, to, to stop, to pause, to breathe, to just say, oh, what's it like, this condition, this state of my existence where I arrive here and I find myself either running, running, running towards something which I can't quite get to, or exhausted from all the running I've been doing before I got here. You know, so many of us, and it's understandable in some ways in the condition of our lives, but it's like there's something unsustainable with what's going on. And this process of kind of pursuing, of chasing after experience. It sort of depends on us being able to control what's going on. And one of the other things that happens here that we encounter, that we see, that we feel, and it's not easy, is that we can't determine the outcome of this situation. We can't get our body to be comfortable. Sometimes it's bright and alert, it seems. And sometimes it's heavy or sleepy. Sometimes we feel a sense of well-being. Other times we feel unwell. And our mind, sometimes it's bright and clear and steady and gathered. Other times it's reactive, it's busy, it's confused, it's sleepy. And this Often a way we kind of feel like, oh, just a moment, I should be able to get this to happen differently. It's like so often when we, when we reflect on what is it that's difficult about doing what we're doing here. Some of it is that the experiences can be challenging, that's true. But some of it is the sense we have that somehow I should be able to get it to be the way I imagine, the way I hope, the way I believe it's supposed to be. 
you know, is someone observed in the again and shared in the groove and, and wonderful when we can see the sun it's like my mind says to me I shouldn't be thinking and yet that's a thought that's telling me I shouldn't be thinking it's like what a condition to be in And so there's this kind of looking around. We might notice a certain hungriness sometimes when we're on retreat. Not necessarily for food, because there's you know, plenty of good food here. Although, of course, we can't just go and get it whenever we want it. But it's more like this hungry looking for what's going to fulfill me, what's going to entertain me, what's going to support me. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's been happening for you, but I'm almost always amazed by the way when in retreat... I start becoming really interested in sort of the notice board, having read the schedule several times already and going up seeing there's not any new notices and yet reading it again, it's like, oh yeah, it's a sitting and a walking and a sitting and a standing. Wow. It's like, you know. (coughs) It's like something about that. It's like, just please give me some entertainment or, you know, I don't know if there's any other place in my life apart from on a retreat where I've carefully read the label on tea bags. <laughs> and it's like, it's like we're just hungry at some level. And yet that activity doesn't fulfill us. It leaves us still hungry, it seems. There's a rather lovely story I like to tell about um, Mullah Nasruddin, who's a, a teaching figure used in the, uh, the Sufi tradition and um, sometimes also appears in the, the, the Hindu tradition. But uh, Nasruddin is both a, a wise man, and so sometimes it would seem a fool, although one suspects his foolishness is simply a way to wake us up to our own. Anyway, Nazarene on this occasion is uh, sitting in the corner of the village square on market day and some of his friends come over and see that he's there with a large pile of red hot chilies in front of him and he's eating them one at a time. And he seems to be in great distress. His eyes are streaming, his nose is running, his face is red and he's, he's not looking happy. And they come up and they say, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? And he picks up another chili and eats it, and his whole body shudders. He says, I'm eating these chilies. And he said and they say, Yes, yes, Mullah, we can see you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? And Nazarin smiles and he says, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. (coughs) It's helpful to be able to kind of hold ourselves with a kind of gentle humour when we encounter what goes on in our minds. It's easy to somehow 
judge or blame or react with some degree of criticism to the experience that can arise for us in many situations in our lives and of course in ourselves. And it's really important to recognise that tendency and to see that actually it's, it's, not, it's not useful and in fact it doesn't reflect the reality of the situation in which we're really given an opportunity here for learning. And learning is something that involves not having to have got it right or be successful too quickly. But actually to explore and to see what's possible here. What's possible for me in this situation? When reflecting upon the conditions that lead to well-being, one of the things that the Buddha said was that he could see no other condition that contributed so much to happiness and well-being as a well-trained heart and mind. And no condition that contributed so much to suffering and distress as an untrained heart and mind. This process of practice that we're engaged in, we can understand it as a training, as a journey of learning, of developing, of cultivating the capacities that we need to live in harmony and balance within ourselves and in the world and with each other. And yet we can't just kind of make that happen we have to first of all come in contact with and see and get to know what it is that goes on in our life, in our mind, in our heart. How it is that we're engaged and that we're entangled so much of the time. So one of the things that we're invited to do is to kind of bring an attitude of exploring, a sense of Let's see what's possible here. Rather than, I've got to do it like this, and I've got to get to this point or that point by a certain time. It's more like, what's possible here within these conditions? Sometimes it feels like the mind is clear and bright, the body is alert and energized, and we can really gather and sustain the attention and focus And there's a deepening and a quieting. And other times, of course, the mind doesn't feel clear or bright, or the body feels heavy or dull, or there's a sense of agitation or distress. And in that, it doesn't feel that the mind can easily settle. But perhaps we could understand in that moment we're being asked more at the level of the heart to open, to make space for this condition too, to allow the experience that's here to be here so that we're cultivating heart and mind together and in fact the language and the words that the Buddha used to speak to this don't really divide up into mind and heart most usefully we could talk about really the heart mind and this heart mind being both what is engaged in the journey of awakening and equally that which is freed within it this heart, this mind. 
So to give ourselves permission for learning, this is something that's really important. Like we have this, I think, rather tragic or unfortunate idea that we get somehow foisted onto us when we're really rather young, that we've grown up. You know, or at least we should have grown up. Something in relationship to when our bodies have come to the, you know, approximately sort of physical maturing of, uh, you know, somewhere in maybe our late teens or early 20s. That's about it. This is the body we got. Um, and, yeah, it's kind of downhill from there, unfortunately, with the body. But uh, not so quickly at the first. So we can enjoy that sort of fullness of bodily well-being or whatever degree of that we are fortunate to to have and of course there can be challenges for us it's not always like that even from quite early in our lives there may be challenges with the body and yet kind of we maybe somehow make more space and make more room for that with our mind there's learning it's like our mind we're not grown up until we've understood we haven't become fully an adult until we've understood what it means to be a human being what it means to be awake, what it means to be alive. And that's actually something that there is no end to discovery with regard to. So if we were to perhaps hold that sense of our life as something which we're continuing to grow into, rather than somehow it's like I'm supposed to have got there, I think it opens up a lot of space for allowing ourselves to explore, to not have to get it right, to not have to be finished or already sort of performing in some wonderful way our meditative skills at the end of day one. And we can notice what happens with that. When we don't give ourselves that space, sometimes people report and, you know, it's like we're meditating. It feels like we've been here for, you know, weeks or at least hours for this particular sitting. And it's like sometimes we just give up. It's like, I can't keep doing this. We look around and it seems like everybody else is sitting there so calm, so peaceful, so bright and clear. And there's a sense of, oh, I can't do this. Everybody else can do it, but not me. It's like, you know, 50 almost fully enlightened Buddhas and one overcooked vegetable. It's like, And we might just in that moment give up. And in that very moment, having given up, we stop fidgeting even. The person next door looks over and, wow. That person sitting really still, they look really calm. They must be in some really deep meditation. And we don't know the stories that go on in each other's minds, of course, but that way in which we so easily imagine that everyone else is somehow there and we're not. You know? It's like those social situations where everyone's acting like this is really fun. But actually one's sitting there going, hmm, isn't that great? I'm not sure I'm enjoying it. And then starts to wonder, as I sometimes have done, I'm wondering if everyone else is enjoying it, because actually I'm pretending to enjoy it too. So maybe we're all actually similarly feeling that actually we're not fulfilled. 
in certain ways. Or in this case, we're not able to do this. And of course, we can't do it. It's not something you or I make happen. And yet, we can orient ourselves. We can engage with this process in a way that allows what needs to happen to happen. And so, one of the things that the the Buddha suggested and encouraged, which I think is really helpful for for us, to actually reflect on and to remember what is wholesome, what evokes a sense of uplift or of goodness, of brightness in our heart and our mind, to sometimes reflect upon the kind actions that we've undertaken in our lives, the good intentions we bring for our practice and our aspirations, what we might wish for. And in this way, aspiration is something that has a sense of opening to it, that says a sense of, yes, perhaps more is possible for my life for my world, for my, for my family, for my community. That sense of something, yeah, that maybe we don't quite know what that will be or how that will look or what it will take to get us there, but there's a sense of, yes, we feel there's a brightness of our heart, there's a, there's a, there's a hopefulness and a buoyancy that it's really important to support when we're, when we're engaged and in the process of practice, where at times it is hard, it is challenging. Of course, you know, there are equally those moments when <clears throat> it's kind of lovely or it's sweet and we can enjoy them, receive them, remember them. But notice sometimes what we also do is after what seems like wishing hopelessly or fruitlessly for our mind to become quiet, for our body to be at ease be a sense of really to be present then in a moment we're almost shocked to discover we are and it's like oh. and yet it only takes a moment before we realise oh I'm actually present and the mind goes I've got it I've done it I can do it I'm here it's great and we start to imagine sort of this meditation career projected out into the future where we're sitting enjoying the bliss and the brightness and the clarity for hours on end and you know maybe we start to imagine that we'll go to the monastery and shave our head and put on the robes and live in the cave and maybe disciples will come to the entrance of the cave and bow down amidst the radiance of light that pours out from the cave while we're practicing and then we realize oh my gosh born of two or possibly three moments of mindfulness. This whole fabricated projection and story has been built. And then it's like, ah, oh, I can't. It's hopeless. And we kind of collapse back into, oh, look, that was just another story, just another moment. Can we just begin again there? And see, oh, look, this was what our mind does. It puffs us up. It deflates us. Or it thinks it is. It's really just inflating balloons, stories, worlds that are created that turn out to be insubstantial. And what we're invited to do is to turn again and again towards our experience. Come back. Don't expect that straight away, as soon as we get here, we can just somehow 
kind of be open and present for it all. It takes time. There's a there's a lovely poem that speaks to this. It's uh, based, I think, or inspired by the poem written by Rudyard Kipling. It's a very sort of, I don't know, sort of noble Victorian sort of poem called F about all the, the wonderful things that one has and qualities one has to be embody if one is to be sort of who one could be and if you can do this and if you can do that and if you can do the other thing and they're all noble and wonderful and beautiful and this isn't that poem um, this is a poem called F but I think it might be inspired by that one it goes as follows I don't know who wrote it but um, if you can sit quietly after difficult news if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm If you can see your neighbours travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy. If you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate and always fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill. If you can always find contentment just where you are. You are probably a dog. So we can perhaps make peace with the process we're engaged in and with the condition we find ourselves within it. That isn't to give up or to abandon in any way our wholehearted engagement with what's here, but to just allow ourselves to begin from where we are. There is no other place from which we can move forward. So long as we keep trying to be somewhere we haven't got to yet, we actually don't go anywhere. That's the kind of remarkable irony. We stay in that same condition. Disconnected from where we are, attempting to lean into where we're not, but actually never getting there. Because we can't be anywhere other than where we are. And so we practice this paying attention and paying attention is like this is currency, this is the currency of our life, what we attend to, what we give our focus to this shapes our life and our world and this was one of the fundamental insights that the Buddha had what we pay attention to and the way we pay attention to it shapes our world, our experience inner and outer And therefore, the training, the cultivating, the development that we engage in is very much to do with, in terms of its foundation, the training of our attention. And from this attentiveness, the capacity for responding skillfully with wisdom and with kindness begins to naturally emerge. And so to do that, in order to do that, it's sometimes we could imagine it, it's, it's like training a puppy. What's really helpful is to, and I don't know if you've ever had such a, a project with a, with a puppy. Um, I've been uh, in recent times walking with a friend who's been training a puppy. And it's very interesting to see the practice that he had. It's very clear. Whenever his puppy is, it's actually, it, he's grown up a bit now. So no longer quite so young. 
Um, but running off and then my friend calling the puppy back, come back, come back, or whistling, come back, come back. And whenever it comes back, he gives a little treat and says, good dog, good Jago, good Jago. And, and appreciates him. He doesn't, as soon as he runs off, say, bad dog, where are you going? He says, come back. And when he comes back, he says, good dog, good dog. And it's like, it's like that with our, with our minds. If every time our mind goes somewhere else, we go, oh, bad mind. It's like if, we were, if that was a puppy, pretty soon it would, you know, puppies go off. They, they, want to, they want to smell the flowers. They want to chase the butterflies. They want to, you know, water the trees. That's what puppies do. And if every time it came back, we said, bad dog, where did you go? You shouldn't have done that. Pretty soon it works out that this person's pretty angry and irritating and you know it's going to get out of here as soon as it can. First chance to escape. But if whenever we notice where the mind has gone, we say, oh, okay, that's where you are. Huh. It's like a puppy. Oh, you've gone there. Oh my gosh, you've gone there. You've done that. Oh my gosh. Okay, come back. Come back. After a while, the puppy gets the idea that this person's kind of friendly and maybe it might be a nice place to hang out, to stay with them. And that's how a how a dog learns to heal. Actually through connection and kindness. Not through coercion and punishment. And in that, sometimes what we find in order to be able to make space for or to hold what's here, we need to be able to allow the mind to move, but just keep coming back, keep bringing it back. And there's a there's a, a saying they, they have in India that... Um, speaks about this process that says how do you fence in a rogue bull elephant and it's an interesting question because actually any fence you build a rogue bull elephant can trample it can smash it and destroy it so it seems like a sort of a a conundrum how can you do that and of course the answer is put the elephant in a really large field. And of course, if it's got enough space, it has no need to break down the fence. And sometimes with our mind, giving it that sense of space, it's like, okay, this is what's happening. And yet combining that with, okay, come back. Okay, let's see if we can be here. Let's just tune into this that's happening now. And as we do this, as we start to come back in, what we, what we see is that this, this process of paying attention, it starts off as seeming like so much hard work. And like I said, you know, we can feel exhausted at the end of the day, having done, it seems, not so much. And yet, of course, it is hard work to withstand the momentum of a current that's running in us, that carries us away. That carries us away. That is hard work. But actually, the more we do it, the easier it becomes. And in fact, it's much harder work in our life to be simply carried by those forces, those relentless momentums that drive us. And so in each moment, making that small but not insignificant effort to come back, to reconnect, to open again. And understanding that, that it's not just the gathering 
of the mind that we're practicing here. But it's the opening of the heart at the same time that allows us to include what it is that's here, where we are in our life, where we are in each moment. And so in this we start to notice and perhaps we recognize more and more that it's actually the quality of the relationship we form with the experience that most significantly determines the quality of the experience. And even difficult experiences, if we meet them with kindness, with openness, with care and curiosity, don't have to in and of themselves become unbearably difficult. Even though, of course, there are those things which are very hard that we sometimes encounter. We can actually bring kindness to that, bring care to that. When the mind is reactive or resistant, when the heart is maybe aching or feels numb or tender, just, oh, this too, this too, this too. And we perhaps start to find and to notice that in this simple willingness to turn towards our experience again and again, to not place so many conditions upon our willingness to be present, to be awake, it begins to slowly open up. We begin to receive more and more from what's just here, the simplicity, the silence, the openness, the spaciousness. They're not something we have to get to. They're not something we have to produce. They're simply what begin to emerge out of the willingness, the courage, the nobility, and the patience that we bring in this moment-to-moment encounter with our life. So as we sit, and as we walk, and as we stand, and as we move through the the fields and experiences of our time here, we can come to know more fully and deeply for ourselves what it is that we are drawn to in the depths of our heart. And yet, have somehow imagined to be somewhere distant from where we are. Dependent on conditions different than those that are here. Each moment offers us the same opportunity to be awake. Each moment offers us the same opportunity to turn towards what is here. With kindness and love. And in our practice we learn and we practice and we develop our capacity to simply receive that invitation, to take that opportunity. And as we do, this life opens up quite naturally and ultimately unstoppably. 
Let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all here together in our practice and in our lives, may we deepen in our capacity to meet our life, just as it is with kindness, with interest and with care. And may the the seeds of, of wisdom and understanding of kindness and compassion. May they continue to grow, to bear fruit and flower for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, for the well-being of all that is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.